brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shinny Somara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on Razor, we look at life after COVID-19. Wouldn't that be nice? I look at why the four-day work week might be a bigger reality post-COVID-19. Well, it all started by me reading an article on the in The Economist, which said that the Brits were only productive for two and a half hours a day, and Canadians in that survey for one and a half hours a day. And I thought, why is that happening? And I take a look at the aerodynamics of COVID-19 and how it can spread in airports. Take a uh, Boeing 737 or Airbus 320 as an example. If you leave the middle seats open, that means that you have only about 60% of capacity. So the risk there, of course, is already reduced by 40%. All right, Shinny, getting back on a plane air or working a four-day week, which would you choose? Oh, don't let me choose. Can I take both? The airplane industry has been hit particularly hard by COVID-19, with planes grounded all over the world. The question has become, how do we restore airplane travel without spreading the virus all over the world? So what do you have for us today? Well, to find out more about how we pass along diseases in airplane cabins, I spoke to Professor Qingyan Chen, who recently published a story about the aerodynamics of COVID-19 in airplane cabins. Yeah, the things uh, is already very different. As you can see, the most of US major airliners are asking passengers to put masks on. And some of them also leave the middle seats open. And I think this is a very important first step for the airliners uh, to take those measures to mitigate the uh, risk. Because when you put the masks on, take the surgical mask as an example, you could filter out the um, particles of around 50%. And that means if I cough out with a thousand of particles, only 500 will go to the air. And even those of 500 that go to your breathing zone, if you have another surgical mask on your mouth and nose, then you will only breathe 250. So you can see less than 75% of reduction. Now, leaving the middle seats open is also very important. Take a uh, Boeing 737 or Airbus 320 as an example. If you leave the middle seats open, that means you have only about 60% of capacity. So the risk there, of course, is already reduced by 40%, just by having fewer people there. So there are a bunch of different measures we need to take before we can travel safely. And Professor Chen mentioned masks and an open middle seat. Is there anything else? Well, definitely arm yourself up with hand sanitizer. He was suggesting that you should wipe down surfaces, um, which is a bit tricky when the seats are fabric but sort of really being mindful of everything that you touch. And he even suggested to not eat when everybody else is eating because it means you have to take your mask off when everybody else has got their mask off. So just making major adjustments to the timings of the things we tend to do on aeroplanes. And what was most shocking, or not shocking, but more kind of surprising, I guess, is that COVID-19 spreads even when we go to the loo, because the virus is airborne in whatever we do when we're in the loo. So maybe <laughs> having a little bit of a time gap in between passengers using the loo might be uh, another way of keeping yourself safe. 
I would love to do that, but the queues are always so long. You can't wait around, Shinny. This is the problem. <laughs> and you know what? Queuing is probably one of the main causes of spread of the virus because people walking up and down the aisles creates further mixing of the airflow patterns within the cabin. And that just means that rather than being at risk to the first three rows in front and behind you, when people walk up and down the aisles, it's actually seven or eight rows in front and behind you that become part of that mixing of airflow zone. It's going to be a very roomy plane at this rate. All right, now you have already done stories on the aerodynamics of the virus when people are running around outside. But have there been any sort of studies on how these air particles behave when they're inside a pressurised air cabin? Oh, loads of studies. Simulations using computer modelling, but also empirical data that's been collected in wind tunnels and kind of pressurised spaces. I mean, they've really mocked this up to understand how air flows within the cabin itself. I mean, it's quite a complex science because even the air we breathe in an air cabin has to be supplied. We're not talking about a natural environment here. It's all been engineered. And COVID-19 is making academics realise that the way we breathe in and breathe out in an air cabin has to be radically changed in order to be the safest situation possible. Professor Qingyang Chen gives us even more to think about. You know, the current ventilation system in the airplane is designed in such a way they will mix as much as they can in the same row, okay? So if, unfortunately, you are sitting with someone who is coughing and sneezing or whatever due to flu or uh, SARS, I don't know, or the same for the COVID-19, then you just um, breathe the air from that passenger because of this type of airflow pattern. And then uh, after a day or two, you might de develop the same symptom. And that's why many passengers have this type of experience. When you are sitting just next to a sick person, then uh, you might have a risk to develop the same symptom. And I hope this will be changed because we already have developed a new type of ventilation systems with Boeing. So our system is not to mix the air. So we try to supply the fresh air directly to your breathing zone. And therefore, you will not breathe the air from your neighbors. Then what you breathe out, which might be contaminated, and because of your body heat, that will generate a so-called thermal prune, just like, you know, you think about the tobacco smoke, you know, the smoke always goes up, and your contamination, your contaminant also goes up. So then the, those contaminated air will be extracted in the ceiling level. So as a result, you are not sharing the air with your uh, neighboring passenger. And we believe this will be a great um, opportunity to reduce the infections like the COVID-19. So, I mean, you've already mentioned some of these things like queuing and stuff like that. It sounds like we're going to have to have a complete redesign of aircraft. I think that's the fear which is going to be a very expensive procedure. I mean, think about all the planes that are quite old and have quite old systems. You know, that's going to have to be redesigned or we're going to have to just take less passengers, which is always the option. You know, 
same with restaurants, I guess. You know, you just have to have less punters in a space. And I think airlines are going to have to weigh up the options. And it's probably going to fall on the fact that having less passengers is going to be uneconomical and therefore a no-go solution. So it's a tricky one. You know, I think technology is really going to have to step up in terms of filtering air, but there's going to have to be some kind of redesign to supplying and extracting air that we breathe in cabins. Yeah, those prices of, of tickets are going to go up. It's going to be a bit like the old days when when actually, you know, flying somewhere was a complete treat. And speaking of flying, and given all the changes that you've discussed so far, do you think you would even fly anytime soon? You know, each day, don't you find this, Emma, each day that goes past, we're getting more information, whether that's, you know, the lockdown easing, or actually two metres can be reduced to one metre. There's a lot of mixed messages. So, I love traveling and I can't wait to get back on a plane and see different places and do all the things we used to do uh, before lockdown. But I think, like most of us, I'm cautious. When we think about life after the pandemic, we soon find ourselves in the realm of social science. COVID-19 required many of us to move from the workplace into virtual offices. But even before the virus spread, one New Zealand boss changed to a four-day working week. Oh, doesn't that sound lovely? And he reckons that going back to our old ways after the pandemic would be a wasted opportunity. Not surprisingly, people like me and Shinny and a lot of our colleagues are very interested in this story. (laughs) Uh, But look, the man who got everything going is businessman Andrew Barnes. And I asked him how he came up with the idea of a four-day working week for his company. Well, it all started by me reading an article in The Economist when I was on a plane, which said that the Brits were only productive for two and a half hours a day and Canadians in that survey for one and a half hours a day. And I thought, why is that happening? Is that happening in my company? And I then started to think, well, what would happen if I gave my staff a day off each week so they could do all the stuff that comes into, you know, the business life on that day off? And would I then get the same level of productivity? Very simple. It was just that debate. How do I measure productivity? And what happens if we change and rethink the way we work? We ran a trial initially at the beginning of 2018. We found our Stress levels dropped about 15%. Our engagement scores, that's enthusiasm, enrichment, empowerment, they all went up about 40%. But critically, productivity went up as well. So in fact, we were delivering the same amount of productivity in the four days as we were in five. And in fact, more people said they were better able to do their work working four days rather than five. And we call this the 180-100 rule, which is 100% of your pay, 80% of your time, provided we get 100% product. Okay, so productivity went up. What, what kind of company was this? I mean, how did they even measure productivity? Well, Perpetual Guardian is an estate planning services company, which means it deals with wills and trusts and things like that. So the first thing they had to work out with their staff was how could they measure productivity? Uh, And once they'd established what their productivity rate was, uh, and if they could do it in less time, uh, then they could sort of 
you know, carry on from there. But I mean, look, money is the ultimate measurement of productivity, isn't it? As is customer service feedback. Uh, and certainly that's the case in this particular company. But they had to figure out the other stuff first. And once that was in place, then they can look at the accounts and say, yes, productivity has gone down or up in their case. I must say that listening to his logic, you can see why people would become more productive because there's so much trust there from their boss. Yeah, definitely. And, and trust is very key because, you know, the, the boss does have to trust the staff that they're going to get the work done. Um, and, and look, you know, you could sort of say, are there, is anybody going to want to do five days still? And it's like, well, possibly. But this is the good thing about the system is that, you know, it's all about flexibility. So if they really want to work five days, they can. I don't know why, but yes, they can. But yeah, they had to have that buy-in with the staff because um, the staff were being asked for their input. How can you do your job more efficiently? And and look, the staff were keen to have that third day off, to have more time with the family, to have time to do all those things that you usually have to jam into your two days off. And they're not having to work longer hours for four days. They work 30 hours and they get paid for 37.5. And Andrew's happy because the productivity has gone up and the staff are happy. Look, but let, let's hear a bit more from Andrew. So every, every time uh, there is another world leader who endorses this, the latest being Jacinda Ardern here, you get a wave of media from around the world. Um, I always say to my team, you know, you've made it when you're being interviewed on drive time Colombian radio. Um, it, it transcends borders and cultures. It comes out of the most you know, extraordinary countries that you would have thought they wouldn't be thinking like that. Uh, and recently I was talking with a, a chief executive of a multinational, 70,000 people. You know, when they surveyed their staff, 80% of them from all over the world said they wanted a four-day week. So this is very, very topical. And that's why it keeps running and running and running in the media. Um, we, as I said, we think the global audience is over four and a half billion now. I absolutely love the theory, but what kind of science is this? I mean, being a science show, we should be uh, squeezing it into some kind of scientific category, right? Definitely. So this is social science. So it's a study of human society, societal relationships. There's not a lot of bunts and burners and petri dishes going on here, Shinny, and and obviously lab coats, which I know you love. But, you know, there, there are seven social sciences, anthropology, archaeology, economics, geography, history, law, linguistics, politics, psychology and sociology. And of course, the pandemic has had its sticky little mitts and all and well, quite a few of those. So are there any professions where you don't see this being possible? Oh, there's there's bound to be. But look, and I think a lot of professions would need to sort of have a th rethink about how they could do this, um, you know, to see if it was possible. But I mean, if you look at the professions such as medicine, I mean, medical people, you know, doctors, nurses, you know, they all work huge hours, you know, 10, 12 hour plus shifts. So how much more could they jam in their day? But you've got to sort of say, well, are the efficiency inefficiencies in their job their fault or is it the system? And, you know, as Andrew pointed out to me, don't confuse being busy with productivity. You can be very busy chasing your own tail, but how productive are you? So in medicine, if you shorten the hours of the doctors and nurses, you would definitely need to hire more staff. Now, their bosses might flinch at that, but, you know, we're always hearing about burnout in, in, in medical people, aren't we? Retiring early because they've had enough. But how many get sick? How many suffer from mental health problems because they're exhausted? And how productive are those people, you know, working in that state? So, I don't know. One of the um, facts that um, Andrew threw at me was, you know, the UK loses 
15 million workdays each year from sickness and mental health issues as you know and as well as the personal toll that's that's big money for bosses and so Andrew Barnes approaches give staff more time off which produces happier healthier workers uh, who do a better more productive job and, and it's a win-win for all. I mean Emma I'm completely sold on this idea what would you do with your extra day? I would stay off the phone for a start uh, how I get the boss to stop me calling on that day, I don't know. Um, but oh, can you, I mean, can you imagine? Like one of the things I've been doing in lockdown is I've had a little bit more time in the garden. I've got courgettes, shinny, and every morning, every morning I go out and and I and I see how they've grown overnight. And so just little things like that, which can make, and you know, instead of spending three hours on a train getting to work and back again, just actually having that little bit of quality time to, yeah, watch the courgettes go grow, smell the roses kind of thing. I mean, yeah, it's made a huge difference. All right, so I know what I'm going to do on my day off. Mm. I'm coming round to yours for some <laughs> courgette noodles. As long as you stay two metres away from me, that's fine. That's all right. I will share my courgette with you. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. Until next time, bye.